Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back, guys. Thank you for joining us once again. This is episode two of season eight. This is going to be an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's Gary Glitter. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I think that's the right word. Weirdly, I feel like I'm looking forward to it. I did personally quite enjoy looking into his career and some of the musical influences and some of the things that were happening during kind of the time of this case. That was interesting. And I think it's always really fascinating when you see someone's complete fall from grace and quite a spectacular, Mm. sudden um, sort of thing in the media. I think it's always really quite fascinating. And I I also think with this case, because it sort of went on and on and on for years and years and there were, you know, he would go to prison, he would come out, something else would happen. It's, I've kind of picked up little bits of it and there's lots of it that I just don't know. So I I think that's going to be interesting to fill in all of the gaps. And I also really want to know whether this all started when he took his laptop into PC World, which is what I think happened, but I could have dreamt that. No, you are correct. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That was well remembered because that was probably 20 years ago. Definitely well remembered. Before we get into it all, let's take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Oh, yes. Silver Dragon, Brian Hearn, Lisa, Samantha Hards, Purple Lobster, Amelia VB, Amelia Peach, Tycho, Maria Kelly, Gemma Hodenot, and Julie M. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thank you to all of you. Thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters as well. If you want to join these guys, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. So this week we are going to be looking in depth at the musical career of the infamous Paul Gadd, probably more famously known of as Gary Glitter. And in a similar way to Mark's episode about Rolf Harris way back in season two. And by the way, Mark, isn't it mad how long ago that was? I genuinely thought it was season five. Oh, honestly, are you sure that was season two? Definitely, because I scrolled back to see what season it was and then I was still going and I was thinking, I must have missed it. It was season two. So anyway, as I was saying, in a similar way to that episode about Rolf Harris and also the episodes in which we discussed celebrities being caught out, so Harvey Weinstein, Paul Ballard, etc, etc. This week, we're going to be looking at the career of a hugely successful musician whose crimes absolutely shocked the nation. And it's kind of mad to think of now because his name is synonymous with the word paedophile really isn't it but when the truth came out it was really shocking news for most people and especially for his fans and I remember that he was one of those a bit like Cliff Richard that's all I'm saying about that but he sort of had this uh really ardent fan base Gary Glitter so um yeah they must have been absolutely shocked by this so I've purposefully written this episode in a certain order so that if the specifics of what Gad did and was convicted for is too much for you to listen to, you can kind of finish the episode early, but you'll still be able to hear about the entire case, Gad's life, if you want to, without those specifics. Does that make sense, Mark? It does make sense. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if anyone's listening to this, whether they would just want to hear about his life and career and how successful he was before all of this shit as well. But no, if you want I don't to, mean like boots. that. I mean, as in like, you might, want to just know a bit more about the case without knowing specific- I don't know you've made no, yeah I that is true I do, I do kind of get it without knowing the specifics in terms of like probably the ages of the children that he abused that mm. kind of thing yeah some of the real intricate detail that none of us really want to uh sort of delve into too much and I'm sure we won't 
No, we won't, because especially this is my episode, you know what I'm like, I try and shy away from too much of the, the gory detail, but we're not we're not really a show that does trigger warnings. You listen to this, you're listening to true crime, it's not going to be great. But I've kind of tried to write this episode this way, just to give, you know, or at least you've listened to most of it, a bit of a heads up that this is where it kind of was going to shift. And I tell you what, Bethan, if there was going to be any trigger warning on this episode, it would be the fact that I think this is your first celebrity case. Oh, I think you might be right. Paul Francis Gadd was born on the 8th of May 1944 in Banbury, which is a market town in the north of Oxfordshire in England. His mother was a cleaner who was unmarried and Gadd never knew his dad. Gadd and his brother were brought up by their mum and grandmother, but mum and grandmother struggled to cope with the boys' antisocial behaviour. They'd play truant, they'd misbehave and they were often in trouble. And eventually when Gad was just 10 years old, the brothers were taken into care. From this point on, Gad grew up in Croydon, a South London suburb, and it was here that he found his love of music. So he was absolutely enthralled by early rock pioneers like Elvis Presley and Ray Charles. Like many teens in the 50s and 60s, he was absolutely captivated by what he saw on stage. And again, like many teens, he just wanted to have a go for himself. But unlike many others, he actually was pretty good and his passion kind of carried him. His first performances came at local clubs, open mic nights. And even though he was still a teen, he was then hired on a paid basis to go and sing in nightclubs. So I thought that was quite interesting. He really was kind of seen to have some talent that early on. And I I think that's the other thing, just because of, well, I, I say just because of what he went on to do in later life in terms of being this horrific paedophile. Even despite that, you can't deny that he had a real talent, didn't he? And he captured the public's imagination at a particular time when glam rock was this big thing. And he was a bit of a pioneer of that himself. So you can't deny that he was successful. But I think it's quite easy to airbrush all of that out when you hear about what he kind of goes on to do. But you can't forget that he was a talented musician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because it is really difficult. You think of like... Stereophonics, for example, was a band that I absolutely adored. They came from a really similar bit of South Wales as my family, so I felt like a bit of a connection with them. I liked their music. I don't listen to them at all now. I cannot listen to them at all. But but it doesn't deny the fact that the music was great at the time. Like it's it's such a hard one, isn't it? You're thinking of the Lost Prophets. Aren't oh you? my god, I am. Oh my <laughs> god, it. I'm thinking of the Lost Prophets. It. Oh my god, yeah. no, Stereophonics. Kelly from Stereophonics is not a paedophile. Let me no, just make that no. very clear. Jesus. Stereophonics Christ. have done nothing wrong. Oopsie. <laughs> yeah, the, was it, it was the Lost, Lost Prophets. Prophets. Yeah. Lost Prophets. Ian Watkins and Ian Lost Watkins. Prophets, not yeah. Stereophonics. Jesus. Yeah. Vile. I mean, that oh. is. Okay, I've so not I've had very much covering. sleep. I'm just going to put that out there. Okay, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it's fine. It's fine. But do you know, what it's... I mean, it is a really hard one, isn't it, to kind of yeah get your head around. Somebody can still be talented musically, but also a fucking ho- horrendous person, awful, awful person. Yeah, we've had it with all sorts of stuff like Harvey Weinstein and mm-hmm. the films he produced. Some brilliant films. Um, but he was this vile monster. But yeah. you can't deny that the films he produced, he had a real talent for spotting talent himself and, and bringing great stories to the big screen. Mm. In 1958, Gad formed his first band, Paul Russell and the Rebels. So he named this band as Russell was his stepfather's name. And part of this band, um, as part of this band, he produced his first record, which was called Alone in the Night. 
The album and the band were not really a hit, but by this point Gad was earning enough money on the nightclub circuit to move out of the family home, and he moved into his own apartment when he was just 15, because he'd made enough money. Music was all that Gad wanted to do. He changed his name to Paul Raven in about 1960, and then began to tour England for gigs. And it really was this amazing, magical time. When we look back, there's this incredible new style of music that had hit the country. Gad was keen to enjoy his slice of the action. He signed with EMI subsidiary Parlophone, recorded a few singles, but was soon dropped from the label. And after this, he worked really hard as a session musician and he did some commercial work to get by. And it's really interesting, I think, personally, to think of who else was kind of up and coming at this time. So there's musicians like Bowie, bands like T-Rex and Slade. And it is genuinely an era of music that I love. I wish I could take a time machine back and just experience it. But this isn't an episode for me to fangirl over bands of the 1970s, is it? No, I'm I'm loving this because I never really knew this about you. So I've learned something not? there. No, I oh, really didn't yeah. know that you were a massive fangirl of 70s music. I love it. I love a good, easy to listen to, easy to sing along to, easy to dance to rock music. That's my, yeah. that's my jam. <laughs> Gad's fortune seemed to change around 1965 when Mike Leander, who was a well-known producer of the era, hired him for a band. So the band, the Mike Leander show band, wasn't a success. But from this, Gad developed Boston International. And as Paul Raven, he toured Europe and they had some success. In 1968, MCA Records named Mike Leander the head of its UK division. And he signed Gad, who chose to give himself another new name. This time he was called Paul Monday. He released a few more singles, but these didn't really go anywhere either. And then he was reborn musically again as Rubber Bucket but he kind of had brushed with hippie music and it just wasn't working for him at all. So many names. So many names. I need to just give full disclosure at this point. I don't know if I've ever said this, Bethan, but the music teacher at my high school always said that he was the brother of Gary Glitter and his surname was Gad. But he um, he really? used to kind of like, yeah, he used to... Uh, not a sort of like boast that he was. But Gary it was an interesting brother, but, thing to say about. Wow. Yeah, and he he would just sort of say, and obviously he was a music teacher. His surname was Gad, and he said that he was Gary Glitter's brother. So I have no reason to disbelieve him, which is uh, no, and especially fact, at that he was a lovely point, guy. Like, why would he not be proud to talk? What one hundred percent? Yeah, this is before anything wow. came out, but uh, but he was a, a lovely guy, uh, the, the teacher for sure. That's so fascinating. Soon enough, the music scene was flooded with makeup, shockingly, makeup on men, gosh, um, <gasps> androgyny, I know, crazy outfits, and even crazier, very high platform shoes. Glam rock had hit the scene. And it was at this point that Gad settled on the name that he would go on to use for the remainder of his career, which was Gary Glitter. Gad and Leander reworked an old demo into what would become a song called Rock and Roll, parts one and two. And I found a really brilliant article online by someone called Carol Brennan, in which she described this as such. So it it was a long studio session that was perhaps more of a party, and it resulted in 15 minutes of tape that was cut down into two songs. Part one was just the words rock and roll repeated, while the more successful part two was even more brief. It had a simple hey and no more. Both were built around stomping rhythm and blistering fuzzy guitars, slightly reminiscent of kazoos. So there you go, Mark. Carol's explained what the songs are. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad she's explained, but they sound shit. Isn't it hilarious that these were so, so popular? 
People just bought any old shit back then. I think, though, it it would have been that sort of thing where you could have it playing in the background and everyone can join in because all you've got to know is the word hey and stomp your feet and stuff. And so, sometimes a song just comes out at the right time for, for mm-hmm. that era and it just captures the public's imagination and takes off, doesn't it? Like things like Vindaloo. Do you yeah. remember that song? Yeah, there's loads like it that are just silly, crazy songs that we adopt and love. That's it. And this was released in 1972. And like you said, after a few weeks, it was just one of those records that just took the country by storm. It's played everywhere and everyone just loves it. And Gad finally had a hit. As Gary Glitter, he was making some serious money. It wasn't all positive. And whilst he enjoyed splashing his cash, the media latched onto his looks and they would write scathingly about him. One quote was, visually, he was disastrous. A slightly middle-aged, slightly overweight, slightly daunting creation, a cross between the failed nightclub rock and roller he had once been and the space-age mutant he now wanted to be. And some even claimed that Gad's chest hair was a wig. And I think that really does show the difference between, like, nowadays. Can you imagine if someone wrote about Ed Sheeran and they said something horrible about how he looked in the media? I just don't think it would happen nowadays. No, it's, um, I think, yeah, we're just a bit more thoughtful now. And I think journalists, uh, they're more regulated than they've ever been. So they've got to be very careful what they say. And we're just a bit kinder, aren't we? I think we try and be a bit kinder. So that is cruel when I, when you sort of, um, some of that description around things like being slightly overweight, um, slightly middle-aged, what the fuck has that got to do with any of it? It's still, to be fair, would have been creating great music at that time. Yeah, visually, he's disastrous. Like, what? Yeah, that is cruel. But this is the thing. Like you said, Gad was completely undeterred by this. And his record sales really helped kind of prove those haters wrong because he did have a number of hit singles. Yeah. Gary Glitter was especially popular with teens. Many have said that they found his outrageousness kind of slightly more accessible than that of others such as David Bowie. So he was a little bit more normal. But horrifically, he was sexually interested in underage girls and this fame and celebrity gave him the perfect opportunity to abuse teenagers so obviously more on that later but as you know at this time Gad's crimes were not known about to the outside world he was just yet another big music star famous and adored yeah so so reminds me of Jimmy Savile and I know obviously he wasn't a musician really but um more of a tv presenter and a dj but another this is another example of somebody acting like this for decades and getting away with it and one's one sort of personality on stage or on screen and then another behind closed doors yeah at the height of his fame gad engineered a publicity stunt in which a ship was chartered and all the old paul russell paul raven paul monday and rubber bucket vinyl was dumped in a coffin and tossed overboard he was no longer those acts he was now gary glitter through and through In March of 1973, he played his first concert in London and he performed in one of the first rock shows ever at the Palladium. And in the summer of 1973, Gad finally had a number one hit in the British charts with I'm the leader of the gang, I am. And this was soon followed by another number one, I love you, love me love. And I feel like our listeners probably will know these songs. Yeah, I mean, I'm the leader of the gang, brackets, I am, is, I I feel awful because sometimes... It's a, that was a massive song. It was mm-hmm. uh, played, I remember that being played uh, up until 
Glitter's Crimes came out. So it was it wasn't a song that just kind of died in 1973 when it was released. It was big and it continued to be big for decades. And even now, there's times when I catch myself singing that song, being yeah, stupid and so singing it. And I'm like, fuck, I need to not really sing mm-hmm. that because he's a dick. It was on an advert. I remember, I think when I was a child, that was the first time I heard it. Was It was on an advert for, I want to say milk, but I don't know that for definite. I can't remember for sure, but I'm sure there were cats cats in a video of like an advert and it's funny isn't it because like I can literally remember seeing an advert with this song and it would be played at school discos it was huge for a long long time and it was also originally featured in Spice World the movie and then I which I think was probably released in 97 98 so it was featured in that and had to be cut at the last minute so I'm Mm -hmm. guessing his crimes came to light in 97 or probably 98 um but yeah, it was, it was a big your, song. With your good general knowledge, this is very interesting because then we'll be able to go like, ding, 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 look what you get. Ding, right. ding, ding. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not putting sound effects in, but yeah. No, the only bit of slightly lighter, lighter content will be, did Mark get some dates right? Exactly, yeah. And Gad also made a movie during this period, which was a film that was meant to be a documentary, but evolved into a feature film during which Gad indulged his wildest rock star fantasies. He was just loving life. He was on TV as well as on stage, appearing on Clunk Click, the variety show that was hosted by Jimmy Savile across 1973 and 74. Um, And his appearance on that is now infamous due to an exchange between Savile and Gad. So Gad says to Savile, I'm looking around the audience actually to see if there's anyone I fancy. To which Savile replied, well, we've got some on the beanbags lined up for you. And he indicates towards a group of girls. And one of the girls was a lady called Karen Ward, a woman who's alleged that Savile raped her as a teenager. This is, that's really interesting to know that their paths crossed and that actually they're they're having this kind of in-joke, aren't they? Live on air, they know what each other are up to at this time. I genuinely think that they did. Um, When I watched that Savile documentary that came out reasonably recently after your episode. I I think I've said before, but I just didn't quite grasp his fame. It was, he was never anybody that I was interested yeah. in. Never, I'd never known how hugely successful and popular and big he was, Savile. And then when I watched that, it really hit home to me. You know, the fact that he was in with the Royals and he was on everything. And they showed that clip And it's just, oh, it's just horrendous. You can see how uncomfortable those girls look. They don't look like how you'd expect, you know, if someone said, you know, oh, over there. And then you'd be like, oh, it's us, it's us. We're getting some attention. They genuinely look grossed out. And I I can almost picture in my head Savile sort of winking at Gad as he says that. Yeah. As -hmm. in, you know, this is our own little in-joke. And, Mm -hmm. you know, perhaps, perhaps they abuse underage girls together as well. We don't know. Who knows? So we will look at this possible connection between Gad and Savile shortly, but before that, we're going to continue with Gad's career and his eventual downfall. Before we do that, we're going to hear from this week's show sponsor. So let's continue with Gad and his career to see how far he came before it would all crash down around him. Gad had another number one and released three more singles in 1975 before announcing his retirement from music. Gad announced that he was going to put on a large farewell concert in early 1976 that was going to be televised across the UK. The inland revenue had begun questioning his finances and Gad later admitted that he was not only spending excessive amounts on his sparkly suits and his big shoes, but of course, unsurprisingly, on alcohol and drugs as well. 
By 1980, Gad filed for bankruptcy, but in 1981, his autobiography, The Leader, helped him to turn his career around again. The book was a bestseller, and Gad put on an oldies tour, an annual oldies tour, which was known as The Gang Show, with Gary Glitter as the headliner. And I don't know about you, Mark, but I remember people talking about The Gang Show. I don't think it was something I was particularly, that I'd watched as a child, but I definitely was aware of it. I don't know, I'd never, because I wasn't really into this kind of music mm. scene, I'd, I'd, maybe that's why, but I'd never heard of it, no. Yeah, so from the early 80s onward, it kind of toured smaller venues during the Christmas weeks, but by 1996, it was selling out places like Wembley Arena. Fucking At hell. Christmas time, this gang show, and Gary Glitter was the main draw. And he also made some minor appearances on the scene during the 80s, apart from the gang shows. So he appeared on an English television show called How To Be Cool, alongside Roger Daltrey of The Who. He had a hit with 1984's Dance Me Up. He performed at the World Cup concert in 1994 in Chicago. And in 1995, Oasis sampled a song by Gad and Mike Leander on their song Hello on their album What's The Story Morning Glory. So he's still pretty major all the way through. I, I also kind of think sometimes, I've never been through this, but I kind of get the impression, so he was declared bankrupt in 1980, probably owing to HMRC having completed their investigation and telling him that he owed probably seven figures or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So I had no choice but to declare, declare himself bankrupt. I sometimes think when people then come through that and out the other side, they will probably value money a lot more and look back to what they were earning and what they could earn. So it might be that, yeah, that really was a turning point for him. So he released his book. He then goes on to put the gang show on and has this kind of TV career. And I know that even up to this day, or certainly... Well, even up to now, I know that he makes a lot of money in royalties because apart from in this country where we don't play his music, it doesn't get sampled, uh, across the world, it's it's a different story. It's, um, it's still played and it's still used in commercials and it's still sampled. And I, I think he still makes six figures a year from royalties from what I remember reading a few years back. So he wow. was, he must have been, yeah, it was a real turnaround in terms of his fortunes, I guess, from the 80s onwards. So you did get it completely correct. It was in 1997 that things kind of finally began to unravel. And you know, you mentioned about the Spice Girls, the movie. And yeah. it was 1997 that I went and saw the Spice Girls at the NEC. Oh, it was did my you? first ever concert that I, like first ever big thing. I was like eight years old and loving life that's epic i feel like we might have discussed this briefly before on the show i think we have i'm sure i knew this and i'm sure i was equally as impressed then and i'm also (laughs) impressed with what you're about to say because i didn't know where this fucking pc world was Mm -hmm. so exactly he'd taken his laptop to pc world in bristol for Mm. repairs in the november and indecent images were found by a technician who then alerted the police Gad was arrested and his homes in London and Somerset were searched and further images and videos were seized. It emerged that Gad had been trawling websites apparently set up to distribute paedophilic material. So day after day, week after week, he had spent literally hundreds of hours logged on searching for material of just the sickest kind. His computer logs showed that he would often be logged on for hours and hours at a time, sometimes continuously for six or 12 hours even. His computer was used virtually exclusively for these purposes. He had built up a vast library. It was filed in different folders 
under different headings and he had so many images of sexual abuse to minors and I found it I guess nowadays we're a lot more aware of things with our computers but he must have genuinely just thought I'll take my computer to PC World and they'll fix whatever's broken on it not realizing they would be able to access all of this this is honestly that was exactly what I was thinking I was I was like, he's got all of that web history. He's got all of these different folders and files set up, which is a vast library of sexual abuse of children. And he's literally walking into a high street store to get it fixed. And he doesn't think that they're going to see some of it. But like you say, it was that is 25 years ago. And things like laptops were still in their infancy. Uh, the internet certainly was. And we probably just didn't know how they worked and what people would need to do if they were going to fix it. We might have just thought they wouldn't even need to turn it on. They'd just kind of unscrew it and replace something. Clearly, he he wasn't aware, Mm -hmm. was he? Yeah. And I'm glad because at least it got found. But it is... Yeah. Yeah, it's just crazy to think of. I find it weird that that is one of the details that stuck in my mind Mm. for 25 years, that that he'd taken his laptop into a PC world. And now you know it was in Bristol. Yeah, fantastic. The now 55-year-old Gad was sentenced to four months in prison after he pleaded guilty to 54 charges of making indecent photographs of children under the age of 16. He'd kind of begun responding guilty in a really strong, clear voice, but according to witnesses in the court, his voice became less clear as each subsequent charge was put to him. He was convicted, he was sentenced to this four months in prison, and he was told that on his release from prison, he would go on the sex offenders register and would have to notify the police of his address under provisions of the Sex Offenders Act 1997 for seven years. And it seemed that this crime was horrific enough, but worse was to be revealed, Frustratingly, however, Gad's victims were not believed soon enough, so at the same time as the trial for the indecent images, a woman really bravely came forward and gave evidence in court that Gad had assaulted her when she had been 14 years old. So the woman had been a fan of Gary Glitter, and she was 14. Um, At this point, she was then a 34-year-old mother of three, and she chose to make the allegations after she read about Gary Glitter's arrest on child sexual abuse image charges. So she'd seen this in the press, and she thought, you know what, now's my chance to speak up. Yeah, which we've seen time and again, haven't we, when when charges are brought, uh, even before somebody is convicted necessarily, when charges are brought and that's made public, then all these allegations then come to light. So that was incredibly brave of her back then because that wasn't so much of a thing, was it, back in 1997 as it no, is now it was, with, with like the Me Too movement, for example. Yeah, it was so incredibly brave of her to come forward. You know, this was 20 years ago in her life, but she was able to then speak up about this. Um, and so this is kind of like the point where this is like the remainder of the episode is kind of, is going to just be all about people going through things in such early years. So it's, it's, this mm. is kind of the point. So Bristol Crown Court was told how Gary Glitter had first met the girl, so this now 34-year-old, when she was 11 or 12 and he'd signed an autograph for her at the Bristol Hippodrome and he struck up a friendship with her family She said, I was in shock. The man on my bedroom wall was in my living room. And I found this really weird and unusual, but fascinating. The way celebrity culture was at this point, quite often you'd hear that families were inviting him into their home and he'd come round and 
I don't know, like you just wouldn't get that nowadays. You wouldn't hear of, you know, some celebrity. What celebrity do you like, Mark? Choose a celebrity. I don't, I'm not very good. Am I? I Ooh, can't think um, on my feet. Oh, I don't know. Let's say Denise Van Outen. <laughs> why the fuck am I? I love Denise, to be fair, but why I've okay, chosen that her, that kind of makes a little know. bit more sense. But like, imagine you're going off and you see her at an event and then yeah. your mum says, do you want to pop round to ours for a cup of coffee tomorrow? So Denise Van Outen comes round to your mum's house and has a cup of tea. It's, yeah, that wouldn't happen. It's odd nowadays, but this seemed to be pretty it, yeah. normal. However, I think it's because they weren't as accessible back in the day. So before social media, mm. um, they, they, they would kind of see and feel the adulation at public events like concerts or if he's performing at the Bristol Hippodrome. They get the adulation, they're at the stage door and they get the adulation then. But celebrities now with social media, they get thousands of messages a day saying they're amazing. They get likes and comments. So I, I think they, they're more exposed to that. And if, if you were a celebrity with quite a big ego back in the eighties, perhaps the only way to really revel in that and, and expose yourself to that adulation was to court it yourself to a certain extent. Cause you can't be on stage 24 mm. seven. You can't get that high in any other way. No, no. And I guess the other thing as well is like you would have needed your mum and dad to take you to the gigs and the concerts. So the family would almost buy into this incredible person's on stage as well. So if he's then charming to the mum or dad and in a different way, they're going to be put at ease and, yeah, they'll invite him around because why would you not do that for your teenage girl to make her popular at school? Wow, Gary Glitter came around and had tea with us. And it's all about grooming the parents as much as grooming Mm -hmm. the child. He is grooming those parents. That's what abusers will always do. They will always look to groom not just the child, but the parents as well, which is what he's done here. Yeah. And this is the thing, like the family then kind of saw it as like almost like a relationship. And that's how it was reported a lot in the press. Between this 14 year old. Yeah. And this relationship in inverted commas actually included Gad taking this girl's virginity. So she gave evidence in the witness box and she broke down in tears and implored Glitter to tell the court what she claimed he had done to her in the 1980s, crying, saying to him, tell them, tell them, please. But obviously he wasn't going to. And the trial at Bristol Crown Court resulted in a not guilty verdict and then some really awful scenes that now, knowing what we know, they just make me sick. So under cross-examination by the defence, The woman admitted she had been paid £10,000 by the News of the World for the story about her relationship with Gad and that he, if he was convicted, she might be paid a further £25,000 by the newspaper. So Gad's defence basically said, on his behalf, I dispute what you say and suggest the entire motive is money. She was adamant she'd spoken out at Bristol Crown Court for the right reasons and said that her motive was to tell people the truth. And then during his summing up, the judge criticised the contract between Gad's alleged victim and the News of the World, saying, Here is a witness who first made her public allegations of sex abuse in return for the payment of £10,000, and who stands to make another 25000 if you convict the defendant on any of the charges. This is a highly reprehensible state of affairs. It is not illegal, but it is greatly to be depreciated. And he also said of the fact that the woman had been a 14-year-old at the time of the alleged offence, well, there is 14 and then there's 14. Some 14-year-olds look like sophisticated young ladies, a nightmare for many publicans, and some 14-year-olds still look like little girls. You may wish to consider which category the girl was in. 
Oh my like, god! I mean, fuck. that is <laughs> this is that the is, judge. That's awful. I mean, that makes me really suspicious of the judge, um, who I'm guessing is a man. Uh, but that makes me really suspicious in his own sort of mo- motivations in saying that and his own experiences. That's just victim blaming to the extreme, isn't it? It's like, look at this woman now, but but yeah, think about when she was 14, she may have looked not too dissimilar and therefore it doesn't really matter about her age. Uh, it's it's okay. God, I mean, the the kind of the, the contract with the news of the world, uh, I kind of get that to a certain extent. It's her right to do that, but I get that the, the defence or like Gad's defence are going to just pull that apart and it doesn't look good, but it's her right to do that. But it could be seen to be interfering with the proceedings of the case, perhaps. It is a hard one because I do kind of get that to a point as well. Like you've you've publicly come out with this story in the papers as well, and you're potentially going to be paid more if he's convicted. So you've got that behind you. But equally, I just oh, I think especially because we know she should have she should have been believed she was definitely yeah. telling the truth i find it weird that i've done jury service at that court and obviously sort of been in two different uh, courts there and one of them could be this the very same court that that took place in isn't that weird it really could have been yeah so this was perhaps the first proper opportunity for a victim of gads to get some justice and it was just really cruelly ripped from her grasp Upon being freed in January 2000, after two months, Gad spoke of his deep regret. Yeah, Mm. two months. And his deep regret was like the regret of being caught, not the regret of what he did. You can't really regret. I don't know. I I sort of think if you're a paedophile, you're a paedophile. Whether you act on that is another thing. But you can't... I don't know how... It doesn't really make sense regretting an intrinsic part of who he is. That's not going to change, is it? And you I are a paedophile. Like, you might regret clicking on a website once, but you can't regret amassing a library of images. Like Regret would be like, I shouldn't have clicked on it. That was stupid of me. Yeah. And if you were caught doing something once, but not over and over for six or 12 hours in a freaking day. Yeah, I was going to say hundreds and hundreds of hours and downloading some of the sickest material out there. So Gad travelled to Cuba with his Cuban girlfriend before moving on to Cambodia, but this country permanently expelled him in 2002 over unspecified allegations. And it was at this point that he moved to Vietnam, Um, but his horrific behaviour continued. And by March 2006, he was back in court. He was accused of sexually assaulting two girls that were aged 10 and 11 in 2005, committing a series of lewd acts while the girls were at his beach house. He was convicted of kissing, fondling and engaging in other sexual acts with the girls, but he evaded that more serious charge of child rape. And in that country at the time, it carried a maximum penalty of death by firing squad. So he very narrowly missed being executed by firing squad in Vietnam. So I was going to say, so he was in court in Vietnam with yeah. uh, facing these charges, yeah. Yeah, and he then was sentenced to three years in prison for the convictions of kissing, fondling and engaging in other sexual acts with this 10 and 11-year-old. Um In addition to the charges of these two girls in question, six other girls aged between 11 and 23 said that he'd had sex with them as well, but it was only the two that could be brought to court that he was charged for. 
His sentence included mandatory deportation at the end of his prison term, and at this point he had no choice but to head home when he was then refused entry into Thailand or Hong Kong. So they were basically like, get out of the country and nowhere else would take him. So on his return to the UK in 2008, the now disgraced former pop star was ordered to sign the sex offenders register. But worse was to be discovered about his past. Paul Gadd was then the first arrest from the huge police investigation, Operation Utree. And I'm not going to go into too much detail about this, but I thought I'd maybe remind us of just a couple of the key facts around this, because we discussed Savile's crimes on a patron bonus episode, talking about how he frustratingly died before his decades-long campaign of sexual abuse was revealed to the world. He didn't face any justice. Drives me insane. Mm-hmm. Makes you so mad, doesn't it? Yep. So when Jimmy Savile died, age 84, his gold coffin went on public display and he was lauded as a national treasure who had raised millions of pounds for good causes. But an ITV documentary called Exposure, The Other Side of Jimmy Savile, researched and presented by former police detective Mark Williams Thomas, was broadcast in October 2012, almost a year after Savile's death, in which his life of depravity was revealed. The ITV documentary contained several allegations by women who said that, as teenagers, they had been sexually abused by Jimmy Savile, and following the broadcast, many other people came forward to make allegations about Savile's conduct towards young people, and including sexual abuse that had taken place on BBC premises, and in hospitals to which Savile had access. And that, for me, was always the worst part of all this. I don't know about you, but it was the the very, very vulnerable people in hospital. I, I honestly don't think you could get people who were more vulnerable because some of them had had like severe head injuries and brain injuries. Obviously, their children as well. A lot of the time, they weren't exclusively children, but there were obviously a lot of children and physically and mentally incapacitated. And he was there taking full advantage of it. And also, I think lots of allegations, not proven, but that he was down in the morgue indulging in necrophilia as well just you just cannot you couldn't make this up you couldn't turn it into a hollywood film and have it be believable because it is just depravity in in the absolute extreme it's just it is just mind-boggling what he did and what he got away with for years and years and years so the Metropolitan Police announced that the inquiry into the allegations would be called operation new tree and would be jointly undertaken with the nspcc The report of the investigations into the activities of Savile himself was published, called Giving Victims a Voice, in January 2013. Operation Utree continued as an investigation into others. Some, but not all, were linked with Savile. By October 2015, 19 people had been arrested by Operation Utree, with seven of those arrests leading to convictions. So when all of this came out, Savile's legacy really shifted. Places named after him were renamed and the headstone at his grave was removed in the dead of night. This was ordered by his family out of respect to his victims. And in October 2012, a police statement said that a man in his 60s had been picked up just after 7am on suspicion of sexual offences in the investigation termed Savile and others. The statement didn't name the man and a spokesman declined further comment. But quickly, the BBC and Sky News identified the man picked up from his London home as Gary Glitter, saying Gary Glitter, a 68-year-old who was popular as glam rock singer in the 1970s. 
and footage on both broadcasters showed Gad wearing a hat and sunglasses, leaving an apartment in central London and being driven away. And hours later, television showed investigators carrying large black bags as they left his house. Gad was held by police for about 10 hours and he was then seen and kind of videoed leaving a police station in central London, minutes later returning to his apartment. And he was bailed to return pending further inquiries and was told to return in the December of the same year. And we've spoken at length about how it must feel to have crimes hanging over your head and wondering if every knock at the door is the police. And for Gad, I'm sure that information about Savile's crimes being revealed, it just must have given him chills and he must have known he was going to get caught pretty soon. Yeah, and sometimes these people, particularly when they've got a high profile and they're a criminal, they have contacts quite high up in the police, for example. So he might have almost been um, told that something like was coming. A bit, yeah. yeah, maybe. Um, because I think it's a very small world that these people operate in, that, that kind of level of extreme paedophilia. And they they want sort of platforms to share content and victims and yeah it's just weird they all kind of know each other and these people are in all different areas of society and I think there's almost like a hierarchy so celebrities judges chiefs of police are are kind of at the top and then you have the the lower rungs below that but they they look out for each other a bit like the masons I'm not saying the masons obviously is a paedophile organization but I just you know any organization that they just it's like any organization that they just kind of look out for each other and try and protect each other I guess yeah what um what I remembered as well talking about Savile mm. is I think um I said this in the Patreon bonus episode on him that he would spend hours in, when he was at Broadmoor, he would spend hours in, was it Peter Sutcliffe's cell? Yeah. And the two of them. apparently had quite a a friendship or relationship in some way, yeah. And I think the two would would spend hours talking about the abuse that they'd inflicted on victims and get off on that. And so Peter Sutcliffe knew before any of us, really, Mm -hmm. apart from the victims, that Savile was an evil man, so... So, yeah, I think there was a... And he would have absolutely reveled in that as well, the creep that he was. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. The victim's allegations broadcast by ITV included claims from one woman that she had seen Gad having sex with an underage girl in Savile's BBC dressing room whilst Savile abused another girl. I knew it. I knew they'd have been up to this together. I knew it. There were allegations from victims that really specified that the two of them not only knew each other, but potentially had abused at the same time. By the time that Gad's case went to court, he was 70 years old. He was charged with sexually abusing three young girls between the years of 1975 and 1980. So he was charged with attempted rape, four counts of indecent assault, and one of having sex with a girl under the age of 13, plus three other charges at Southwark Crown Court in London, and he pleaded not guilty. Now, a lot of this is quite difficult, because, and I've, I do go on to try and explain it a bit more, but because the, the crimes occurred in those years, they kind of had to be the sentences for the time. So having sex with a girl under the age of 13, no, that's rape. Like it's, but back then, that was it. And also the indecent assaults and stuff, it, it was a lot 
lesser the charges that you would be brought against you. I kind of get that and it kind of feels fair, but I don't yeah, want to like feel it, that uh, way. But No, I know. But the, yeah, that you would, you did it at that time, but the judge was very, very clear with kind of sentencing with this. So yeah, it's a bit of an odd one. I just didn't want people to think, well, what, having sex with a girl under the age of 13? Like what? That, it just feels wrong now, doesn't it? And at points in the trial, he said to the jurors, I can't say why anybody would dislike me. I did not try to rape her or any other child. I have absolutely racked my brains to wonder why she could say such a terrible thing. Why would I do something like that? And he also said, I've always got girlfriends around me, plenty of women around me. Why would I do something like that? Because there's a big difference between your girlfriends and the women around you and your depraved fantasies. So Yeah, I mean, this is clearly about taking advantage of people who are vulnerable, control. That, mm-hmm. Those aren't desires you can fulfil with girlfriends that are around you. No. And during the trial, he was asked about those historic charges of his library of indecent images of children. And he just went all out with the crocodile tears. His excuses were pathetic. So here's a few of the things that he said. I was drinking heavily. I was doing drugs. And the other thing, of course, is that I had to find this money to pay for the legal costs in the studio. And I was asked by my management to seriously do the one thing that was absolutely terrible, which was to sell my songs to Universal Pictures. And I regret it. I was just in a bad place. I went to prison. I came out. I was remorseful and I am remorseful. I am so sorry. It changed my life forever. I lost my honour. I lost my family. And he told the court that at that stage in his life, he was not able to empathise with the child victims of the indecent images that were found on his computer, but added he now recognised the damage caused to those vulnerable youngsters. And he even said in court, it has to stop all this internet pornography of children. It has to stop. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. What the fuck? Fuck off. And he'd actually said he was he was not able to empathise with the child victims. At that the time were in when that, he was looking at it, yeah. Yeah. That, oh God. I mean, that really kind of sums it up. You're not going to fundamentally change that part of your character or personality either. If you couldn't empathise with them then, then he's not going to be able to now. And he was asked, why did he look at those images? He said he'd been curious. And then he also tried to get a bit of sympathy as well, because he said he'd been abused as a child, so perhaps he was trying to work his own feelings out. And he said, today it would not happen. I have no interest in looking at that awful porn now. Absolutely no interest at all. It has destroyed my life, it has destroyed my family's life, and it has most certainly destroyed all those poor victims' lives. I have total empathy for those poor children. But what pisses me off is that he's still calling it porn porn yeah i thought exactly that's what the makes same. me so fucking angry he's still calling it child pornography like what yeah. it's yeah. not you cannot it's call it images that. of no. abuse yeah 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 absolute doesn't have a clue spouting some shit that someone's told him to say and either kind of calling it porn as a way of getting off on it or thinking he's pulling the wool over everybody's eyes or just so thick that he doesn't really understand the difference. Yeah, because if he genuinely had empathy for those children, he would see the difference. That's why you or I can see the complete difference. And it was put to him that clearly he did have an interest in underage sex. You know, his conviction for this indicated that. And his response was, I ventured into all sorts of porn in which that awful stuff appeared. I pleaded guilty to it, I was guilty of it, and I went to jail. And I have been remorseful ever since. Yeah, fucking right, because you moved to Cambodia, got kicked out for something that they haven't announced, and then Vietnam where you were sentenced for child abuse. Like, 
no, you're not fucking remorseful. No, and then we, if we look at people like Richard Huckle, so we did an episode on him, Britain's mm-hmm. worst paedophile. He went to the Far East, I can't remember which countries, but it is known that there are these trails of sex trafficking tourists. You know, I can't remember exactly what we called them, but people that go to these far-flung countries specifically to abuse children whose families are perhaps more vulnerable than families in the UK are and who will sell their children or sell their children into the sex industry because they are so desperate to feed their other eight children who will die otherwise. So that that's what's going on in those countries. That's why he's been attracted to those specific countries because abusing children is easier in those countries than it is mm. here. And that was what made me really pleased that actually he was put on trial and that potentially he could have faced firing squad if he'd been convicted of rape to know that actually the... Whilst it is horrendous that it does go on, actually, if you're caught, in Vietnam, the laws are so severe and it's not, you know, accepted by the government as well sort of thing. It's nothing like that. It is... They're not turning a blind eye. something that they're trying to, like, get rid of. So one of the victims who... So the crimes kind of in this trial, there were three victims. Obviously, there's lots of others who spoke out and lots of other people who made allegations but these were kind of the three that could be brought to trial that the cps felt they could so one of the victims was just eight years old when gad tried to rape her in 1975 she told the court that she had visited gad's mansion on numerous occasions as a child because she was a friend of gad's daughter and so on this particular night, whilst this friend and Gad's daughter were sleeping in the same bed, he'd kind of crept into the bed whilst they were asleep. She'd wrapped herself in the blankets and moved away, avoiding Gad kind of raping her, but he'd had a, definitely attempted. And she even said that afterwards she'd felt ashamed and dirty. After the attack, drunken Gad had fallen asleep in the bed and she'd locked herself in a bathroom to get away from him. And his daughter had been aware of the attack, being in the same bed. That is just the stuff of nightmares that he's getting into their bed and attempting to attack the daughter's friend with the daughter there as well. Mm -hmm. And the judge kind of made a comment on like how much that will have affected his daughter for the rest of her life as well, that whilst she wasn't necessarily a victim of direct abuse, that that was a horrendous thing for her to witness weirdly i just i didn't even think that he had kids i didn't know that gad had any children himself i find it weird that he does yeah i've tried not to kind of look at any of his family which is why i felt it was quite interesting because we obviously touched on his brother a little bit at the beginning and we had that obviously that interesting potential that your music teacher had the connection but yeah and i i believe him as well i think it's i think it's probably very true because what why would he lie and he'd easily get caught out otherwise wouldn't he so There was a 12-year-old girl who'd come to a Gary Glitter concert with her mum and the pair were invited backstage to meet Gad. They were then invited up to his hotel room, at which point a situation was orchestrated which meant the mum was taken out of the suite. And I can't really work out what happened. I can't find any information about the kind of specifics around this. But like we were talking about before, this grooming of the parents definitely will have taken place here because this mum then was removed somehow from the suite and alone with Gad the 12 year old girl was subjected to a night of abuse so Gad who was in his 30s at this point kept her in his room for the rest of the night he took full advantage of his celebrity status he digitally penetrated her vagina 
he performed oral sex on her and subjected the 12-year-old victim to rape. I can understand how that that situation was engineered, getting rid of the mum. It just, they've got, Gad would have had people working for him. He might have had people that knew what he was up to and were on the payroll and it was their job to just make shit happen. So if the mum needed to be taken down to the bar at the hotel and gotten drunk and put to bed, then that was going to happen. And that could have been what happened. come with us and we'll get you some signed stuff for your daughter. Yeah, anything, yeah. And we'll get some merchandise. And apparently, though this has not been proven and it's not been substantiated, there was um, like a specific knock that the his team would like the people on his payroll that you mentioned like the sort of people who would go and find girls they do like a specific type of knock on the door to kind of be like this is what we're bringing you this person is potentially a victim and in a target for you he's he's got people around him helping to facilitate mm-hmm. this surely yeah So in regards to this um, 12-year-old victim, the judge said to Gad, she has also been greatly damaged by this. You gave no thought to the harm you were doing to her. Your only thought was for yourself. So there were two counts of indecent assault which related to a 13-year-old victim who visited Gad's dressing room after a performance and she was left alone with Gad for a few minutes during which he put her on his lap, kissed her in what was described as a sexual manner, put his hand up her skirt and touched her vagina through her clothing, and he told her that this was to be their secret. Ugh, it makes me feel sick just reading it. He's such a creep. And all three victims gave impact statements to the court in which they explained how they were all profoundly affected by the abuse that they had suffered. And I just thought it was so brave of them to be able to talk about this, but I kept thinking back to that woman in the 90s who was at that point 34, and just thinking, God, she must have been sat there watching this unfold on the telly, thinking, why was I not fucking believed back then? Yeah, they must have been really weird emotions because Mm. their stories add weight to her allegations. But yeah, I think there must be a real, I don't know how you would describe it, but you're right, like, why was I not believed and why are they being believed? A resentment almost, but at the same time, a real understanding of their bravery in coming forward and that ultimately it's hopefully going to get the result that she should have got back then so the jury of seven women and five men found gad guilty although he was cleared of two counts of indecent insult and one count of administering a drug or other thing in order to facilitate sexual intercourse so those bits they either couldn't be proven or they felt he was not guilty of Um, and gad was sentenced to a total of 16 years So in sentencing, the judge explained to Gad and the court the rulings he had to follow when it came to deciding on the term of Gad's prison sentence. So he kind of clarified that because the offences took place many years ago at a time when the maximum sentence was considerably lower and the sentencing climate was less severe than it is now, he had to ensure that he sentenced Gad in accordance with the sentencing regime applicable today, not at the date of the offence, but he was limited to the maximum sentence available at the time of the offence. Does that make sense, Mark? <laughs> I think it I think it does. It's quite yeah. wordy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. He's still bound by some of the procedures as they would have been back then in terms of maximum sentence. Yeah. And he said he had to assess the seriousness of the offence and had to be guided as to that by the current guidelines. So those relate to the harm caused and the culpability. 
And the judge also talked about how whether or not the passage of time was an aggravating, a mitigating or a neutral factor. And for this, he said, there may be cases where a lack of offending in the meantime, coupled with evidence of positive good character, might offer some mitigation. Yours is not such a case. You have, in fact, committed offences since those before me today, your convictions of 1998 for downloading indecent images of children, and further, I can find no real evidence that you've done anything in the intervening 40 or so years to atone for these crimes, which I thought was very well said. He also clarified that where it was necessary to do so, he had to consider how the offences Gad committed would have been characterised under modern legislation and modern guidelines, even though they had to be described in the old terms. Um, and the sentencing remarks were really interesting. He kind of refers to each individual crime and says at the time this was this, but it's clearly rape and here's, you know, this would have been rape. It was attempted rape and here's what it would have been classed as and very, very fascinating. And then also during sentencing, the judge remarked on Gad's age saying, I acknowledge that you are no longer young. You are soon to reach the age of 71. As your counsel recognises, this cuts both ways. You've had the benefit of living for nearly 40 years unconvicted of these offences, so it cannot carry any weight. And I thought that was really good. He didn't give a shit that he was an old man now. That's really interesting. He was really still going to sentence him. And I'd never thought of it in that way, that actually Glitter has had the benefit of living for nearly 40 years, having not been convicted of those offences. So he'd gotten away with it. He was free to carry on and live his life and enjoy his money. So, yeah, I think that's absolutely the right thing to not have pity on him and say, well, you're, you know, nearly 71. And if even if I just give you eight years, you'll probably die behind bars. Is like, fuck you. You're going to have the book thrown at you. Following the high profile trial, Detective Chief Inspector Mick Orchard of the Metropolitan Police said Gad had shown himself to be a sexual predator who took advantage of the star status afforded to him by targeting young girls who trusted him and were in awe of his fame and added that his lack of remorse and defence that the victims were lying makes his crimes all the more indefensible. Peter Watt, Director of National Services for the NSPCC, said, Glitter was devious and manipulative throughout this trial. Thankfully, the jury has seen through all of the fake tears and his attempts to paint his victims as liars, gold diggers or opportunistic fantasists. He tried to portray himself as the victim in this case, as a remorseful, penitent man who had paid for his previous crimes but now faced malicious new allegations. It was just another performance. But not a very good one because everyone saw through it. Chief Crown Prosecutor Baljit Obhay, the head of Crown Prosecution Service in London at the time, said, Crimes such as these have repercussions for victims that can last a lifetime. The bravery of the victims and other witnesses in this case cannot be understated, and their testimony has been vital in bringing Paul Gad to justice. Mark Castle, the chief executive of charity Victim Support, said, We hope this verdict will encourage people who have been sexually abused to speak out or seek help. Unless they have confidence in the criminal justice system, abusers like Paul Gad will not be brought to justice. And I kind of felt like that was the right place to end this episode, the bravery of those victims to speak out and that, yes, people, if you have, if someone has been sexually abused, speak out, seek help and have kind of confidence that you won't be treated like that woman was back in 1997 that actually you'll be listened to and I really hope that that's how victims kind of feel when they have to go and report something. Yeah thankfully I think from everything we've done on nearly 200 episodes when we've delved into similar cases it's so different now even in just sort of 20 years 
people are believed as a first port of call and so much more is done to support victims. Whereas, yeah, only 20 years ago, it was uh, just people just weren't believed, basically. Uh, that was a kind of starting point that they weren't believed and they would sort of have to prove that this had happened to them. Yeah, they were almost on trial themselves. Oh, and, and that still happens a bit, I think, to this day when defence gets gets uh, a victim on, on the witness stand. They'll still try and rip them apart, but everything leading up to that, at least the victim is, is, is supported and things like victim support. So you talked about the chief executive of that charity. They're a great charity that will be with victims every step of the way. They can take them into court before the trial begins so that it's not the first time that they're going in and they can get used to the environment. So there's so much that that charity can do and there are, other, are others like it. But yeah, thank God it's it's moved on. Yeah. So I'm guessing, is he still in prison? He is, yeah. And there's been he's been in the media in more recent years, stupid little things like, oh, he got his COVID jab and stuff like that. But not, not really um, that he, you know, he doesn't seem to be trying to atone for anything or anything like that. He's just, and he will, he'll just be in prison now for the rest of his life until he dies. Those 16 years, I can't imagine he's going to be out. And also, <laughs> even, he... I don't even know if he'll get parole, to be honest, in that sort no, of thing, whether no. he is released or whether they'd end up keeping him in. I just don't really know. It might be if his health deteriorates to such an extent, that's where they might consider sort of compassionate grounds and, and a release into. Maybe, but maybe into like a of, hospital setting or something. Yeah, a hospice or, or relative. But um, but also don't forget he's, he lived quite a debauched life in terms of um, substance abuse, which may have an impact in later life on on his health. So uh, the the kind of normal lifespan for him might be quite different to that of an average male. And I do wonder as well whether or not his family would even want to support him as well, because I haven't really got into it in loads of detail. But if people are interested, they can look up his cousin who was a young girl at the time and. Um, she's come out and said that he actually abused her as well and he'd invite her and her friends to come round and because it's her um, it was either uncle or cousin I can't remember whether or not she's cousin or niece but I'm pretty sure they were cousins but the age gap was quite large and nobody really thought anything of it because it's family and I do wonder now whether the family would just be like you know what we don't want anything to do with him and would he have anybody that would want to care for him yeah exactly I mean can you imagine as well if you are working in a hospice and you've got to say for example he ends up in in the care of a hospice and you've got yeah, to and look after him. Yeah, you've got to compassionately him. care for that person yeah. with Who those has caused all that head. damage. Yeah. yeah. And that I mean that is a whole other debate. Mm. I don't know how how people would deal with doing that, but equally yeah. I think really everybody deserves some kind of dignity in death, but well, I don't know. I just don't know. That's a whole other fucking debate. We'll have to have it on yeah. the Facebook group. It's uh, ripe for there. Definitely. Uh, wow. Thanks, Beth. And it was, um, yeah, just a really informative episode because, there were, as I said, there were so many gaps in my knowledge around this story and it's worse. It's worse than I thought it was. Um, so that's thoroughly depressed me for this, what we're recording on, a Bank Holiday Monday. Uh, yeah. Completely Sorry fu- about that, everybody. Fucked that up. Yeah. Yeah, well, there we go. Thank you for joining us and thank you for listening to the episode. And we will be be back back next week. Next week, yeah, we'll see you then. See you then, guys. Bye.
Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Romball and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now, each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.